you'd please turn in your copy of God's Word to the uh, Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we will be looking at Mark chapter 16, verses uh, 1 through 8 uh, this morning. Uh, this will be the final sermon uh, in our uh, sermon, morning sermon series throughout the Gospel of Mark. Uh, next week, we will go to the Old Testament, and uh, we are going to begin a sermon series on the book of Leviticus. Uh, don't get scared by that. I know that Leviticus can be a, a daunting book, but I hope that we will see as we start Leviticus that really there is no other book in the Old Testament and perhaps in all of the Bible uh, that brings to light uh, the atoning work and atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Uh, so I look forward to it. I hope you look forward to it as well. Uh, so next week we will begin a new sermon series uh, in uh, the book of Leviticus. Uh, But with that introduction out of the way, let us uh, now turn to God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, They went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? O Lord, that we would see our risen Savior this morning. Illumine our resurrected Christ. To the hearts of your people, we pray, as we sit under your word read and preached. We ask this in the strong name of our resurrected King, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I mentioned last week to you that we will not be looking at verses 9 through 20 of chapter 16 in Mark. Uh, Your Bibles probably tell you the reason why we Uh, will not look at verses 9 through 20. You perhaps have brackets around verses 9 through 20 and perhaps a footnote uh, that lets you know that uh, these verses in verses 9 through 20 are not in the earliest manuscripts that we find uh, in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, The long ending of Mark uh, is really missing in the two earliest manuscripts we have, known as uh, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Uh, Early church fathers such as Clement of Alexandria and Origen seem uh, to not even be aware of 
verses 9 through 20, the long ending of Mark. Uh, According to Eusebius, uh, a famous uh, third century church historian, uh, he says, quote, the most accurate copies of Mark's gospel and almost all the copies of Mark's gospel ended with the words, for they were afraid in verse 8. Jerome, another prominent church father, uh, said that almost all the Greek copies uh, in the early church that was at his disposal uh, lacked verses 9 through 20. Uh, There is also much internal evidence as well from the book itself. Uh, The style of the Greek and the way it is written in verses 9 through 20 is very different uh, from really everything that we read leading up to verses 9 through 20 of chapter 16. Uh, in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Really, you will not find, I couldn't find one scholar, both in the liberal world and in the conservative world, uh, that believe uh, verse 9 through 20 belongs uh, to the original writing of the Gospel of Mark. Now, all that's to say that there isn't really anything in verses 9 through 20 that is heretical. Uh, All of it is doctrinally sound, we might say. And and it seems the content is really, in many ways, a collaboration and a collation of, of events and recorded events that we see in the other three Gospels, uh, namely in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 28 and the Great Commission uh, that Jesus gives uh, to his disciples. So you can read verses 9 through 20. In fact, I would encourage you to do so, and you can glean wisdom from it. You're not uh, committing the unpardonable sin by reading it. Uh, There's nothing particularly offensive or heretical or doctrinally unsound about it. Now, as we read the passage from verses 1 through 8 a moment ago, you may understand why someone may have come along and and added verses 9 through 20. Mark's gospel, you might have noticed, ends very abruptly, and they were afraid. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think uh, Easter coming up in a few weeks, we're going to hear of many churches that are going to be singing songs about being terrified or about being terrified about God. What are we going to do? What are most churches going to do? What is this church most likely going to do? In a few weeks, we're going to sing Easter hymns about the joyful resurrection of our Lord and Savior. So I think as we we read verses 1 through 8, we can kind of see why the added information was given by this redactor later uh, on. We've We've got to wrap up the story a little bit better, Mark. We can't wrap it up, this joyous news of of Christ being resurrected with the words, and they were afraid. So you have somebody come along and and make uh, the story, or wrap it up in a tighter package, if you will, uh, more consistent perhaps with the other three Gospels. However, what I think uh, this redactor has done, and what I think it does, the long ending does, is it takes away something from Mark that he gives us, which is unique among the four Gospels that I think we should remember, especially as Easter is approaching and when we celebrate Easter in a few weeks. And that is that the resurrection is a powerful act of God. And when confronted with the power of God, that is a fearful thing. Certainly it is joyous, But simply because it's joyous doesn't mean there is not reverent, fearful awe at the sight of it. It is a fearful reality to come into the presence of God and his divine power intervening within history. 
And I think in many ways, that is what Mark is doing for us by ending this gospel this way. He is bringing to light to us something that I think we can tend to forget. This is divine power at work. The empty tomb is a fearful thing. It is being confronted with the supernatural work of God intervening itself within history. So I think the ending of Mark is is quite apt, especially considering the abruptness of how Mark begins his gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and they were afraid. It sort of has this abruptness, that word immediately that runs through the gospel of Mark. It just fits what Mark is doing in his gospel so well. So we will be ending this morning our sermon series in the gospel of Mark, where I think clearly Mark intended uh, to end it, and that is with the resurrection account in verses 1 through 8. Let me just give you an idea of where we will be going this morning in our sermon. I'm just going to give a brief exposition of verses 1 through 8, and then we will close with uh, three final remarks and things we can learn from the resurrection account here in Mark 16, verse 1 through 8. So first, the exposition of verses uh, 1 through 8. Verse 1, we are told that the women, Mary Magdalene and and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brings spices to the tomb of Jesus. Uh, it was common in the Jewish world in the first century uh, for people to bring spices to tombs uh, in order to offset the unpleasant odor that would come from a, a body uh, that was decomposing. Uh, it is more than likely that the women uh, wait till Sunday because it would have been uh, profaning the Sabbath on Saturday for them to go to Jesus's body and and bring these spices. So I think we should see here, this is the first time that these women are bringing these spices uh, to anoint uh, Jesus, their Lord. Uh, This is clearly an act of devotion uh, to Jesus. These women are caring for the body of their Lord uh, Jesus. This oil more than likely would have been placed atop his head and And many scholars seem to think that this oil that they used could have perhaps been the oil that one would use to anoint a dead king when a king had passed. Uh, So this is a sign of devotion uh, from these women as they go uh, to their Lord's lifeless body and anoint his head with oil. Uh, Think of the woman back in chapter 14, verses uh, 1 through 9, who takes that that alabaster flask and and breaks it and just pours that expensive oil over the the head of Jesus. And and Jesus tells those who are sort of scorning the woman for doing this because she could have used that expensive oil to give to the poor. And and Jesus sort of sums up what she's doing. And he says, she is anointing me and preparing me for my burial. And whenever the gospel is proclaimed, this woman uh, will be remembered. Well, I think we can safely assume certainly these women here who are coming to anoint the head of of the slain Jesus and his lifeless body. Certainly we can say that they are remembered every time we recall the resurrection event. So there's this undying devotion to the Lord that we looked at last week and that we continue uh, to see here. Verse 2, Mark says, it was very early in the morning when the sun had risen. Now, it's an interesting add-on that, Paul, uh, that Mark gives us there, that the sun had risen. Uh, the phrase early in the morning 
was a common phrase that to the reader, they would automatically understand was a time between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. before the sun had risen. In other words, to say early in the morning was really an indication that the sun hadn't risen. Yet Mark tells us, he gives us this added note, that the sun had risen. Think of the darkness we saw at Calvary, the darkness we saw at the cross that was there for three hours as Christ was hanging on a cross dying. But now on resurrection day, this morning, the sun is up. Think of how Genesis 1 begins. The earth was without form and darkness was over the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. The darkness of Calvary is followed by the light of resurrection. And with Christ's resurrection, a new creation has come. Verse 3, the woman say, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Uh, The women on their way start to consider, wait a second, there's this massive boulder (laughs) covering the tomb. And it just sort of comes to their mind. Who's going to to roll away this this massive stone. It presents an obstacle to to these women's entrance uh, into the tomb. But verse 4, they see that the stone has been rolled back, and Mark tells us it was very large. Uh, I think this probably adds to the trepidation that we see from these women. In order for this stone to be rolled away, we mentioned it last week, it would take the strength of several men. It would easily be placed uh, as a covering for the tomb because there would be this groove that would sort of slope down towards the entrance that really one man could easily just push it into place. But to get it out of that groove would cause the strength, would would need the strength of uh, several men. And I think the added note by Mark here that it was very large is meant to shout out to us as the reader of the miraculous nature of this event. Verse 5, the women walk into the tomb and see a man dressed in a long white robe, sitting down on the seat that was often at the right side of the tomb. And we are told that the women are alarmed. Now, this man is more than likely an angel of the Lord. Uh, The white robe is the characteristic dress of Uh, heavenly beings. Uh, This language, do not be alarmed, we see both in the Old Testament and in Luke for uh, words and phrases, the first words that angels will utter to someone when they are alarmed by the presence of an angel. Uh, So this is more than likely an angel of the Lord, a messenger of God. And the angel tells the woman uh, to not be alarmed. Verse 6, you Seek Jesus of Nazareth, he says, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, as though to say, you seek a dead Jesus. The days are over when you no longer seek a dead Jesus, but you seek a risen Jesus. Go and meet him. Verse 7, the angel says, Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, this is a fulfillment of a prediction that 
that Jesus had given back in chapter 14, uh, verses, uh, verse 27, when he says to his disciples, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And here the angel, the messenger of the Lord, is saying all is taking place just as Jesus predicted uh, back in chapter 14. Verse 8, and when they went out and fled, they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, this statement here at the end, that abrupt ending, as we've already noted, they were afraid, uh, which closes Mark's gospel, is a phrase that finds its closest parallel earlier in Mark's gospel in chapter 9 at the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, You recall there at the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus Christ is transfigured before Peter, James, and John. They get a glimpse of that, that glorified Christ, that glorified Christ that that is now a reality, now that he is resurrected and he is going to ascend on high to sit at the right hand of God the Father. And Peter, James, and John get this glimpse of that glorified, transcendent glory of Christ. And we are told there that that Peter, as he's witnessing that glory, uh, suggests they make tents for for. Elijah and Moses, who are beside Jesus, uh, along with making a tent for Jesus. And in verse 6 of chapter 9, it says, For he did not know what to say, for they were exceedingly afraid. They were exceedingly afraid. Uh, It is a fear that comes from being in the presence of a holy God as he puts his power on display. Listen to what Donald McLeod writes here. In the resurrection, we are in the presence of the uncanny, of the irreducibly holy, of that for which we can offer no explanation. Instinct flees. This is not a natural phenomenon. This is not a magic trick. This is not an anomaly in in an otherwise uniform universe. No, this is something utterly divine, and it is awe-striking. As McLeod says, it is uncanny. And Mark ends his gospel here so that we, too, uh, might close its pages in fearful awe and wonder at the empty tomb of Jesus Christ, in reverent fear before a holy God, and in reverent fear before our Lord, our King, our prophet, and our priest who has been risen by the power of God. Now, I want to close this morning with just three things to consider about Christ's resurrection here, three things that we can learn uh, from Mark's resurrection account here in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. And the first point is quite simple. Uh, The resurrection is true. The resurrection is true. It is worth considering that from Christ's crucifixion all the way here to his empty tomb, Mark has, has emphasized the role of women in witnessing Christ and this transition from his humiliation into his exaltation. Verse 40, after Jesus died on the cross, Mark tells us there were women looking on from a distance. 
Verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw that there, saw where he was laid. They, they witnessed Joseph of Arimathea lay Jesus in the tomb. And here in chapter 16, it is the women who witness the empty tomb. The witnesses of Christ's transition from his state of humiliation into his exaltation are women. The empty tomb is based on the account of women. Now, why am I making a point to to show that, that Mark is highlighting that it is women that witness this? Why is that important? Well, in the first century, women were really seen as second-class citizens. Uh, The testimony of a woman was inadmissible in a Jewish court of law. If someone were to have made up this story, the last thing they would do is base its veracity on the account of women, on the fact that women have witnessed this resurrection. It is evidence that we are reading a story that is not mythological storytelling, but actual history. You deny the Gospels, that's fine. You want to deny the Gospels. You're not denying something that is mythological storytelling. The Gospel writers are self-consciously and clearly seeking to write a historical account. And it is proven by the fact that if they were making it up, there is no way they would choose women to be those that the resurrection account is based on. And it is also evidence of what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, 25. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It's really what we have seen on full display ever since the cross all the way up to his resurrection, isn't it? Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1, 25 on full display, manifested before our eyes. Crucifixion, which puts Christ on display for all of the public as he is raised up for all to see, both the Jewish and Roman world. Crucifixion being a sign of shame and of guilt, of weakness and foolishness, ends up being the symbol that God uses to manifest his wisdom and to manifest his power and his strength to save weak and feeble sinners such as ourselves. Weak women who couldn't roll away the stone. Foolish women in the sight of the first century world. God decides to hang the testimony of his son's resurrection on. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. The cross of Jesus and the women at the, wo- at the tomb are really clear signs for us that in order for us to be strong, we must be weak in the eyes of the world. In order for us to be wise, we must be foolish in the eyes of the world. Even the very means by which God brings redemption for his people, he is pleased to use all of the elements of foolishness and weakness in order to to display his wisdom and his power. And so also we as his servants should expect to be seen as foolish and weak in the world. Second, the resurrection is a vindication for Christ. 
The resurrection is a vindication for Christ. It's worth noting that the angel uses the word crucified. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who has been crucified. Not you seek Jesus of Nazareth who has merely died. No, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who has been crucified. The crucifixion was a symbol of Christ's guilt before the Roman world and before the Jewish council. It was a sign of his condemnation from the governing authorities, both in the secular world and in the religious world, that was seen uh, with the high priests in Judaism of the first century. What the resurrection does is it vindicates Christ as the Son of God, the King of the Jews. Romans 1, verse 4, Paul will say, He was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection, in many ways, is a declaration from God that Jesus is who he said he was. He is the Son of God, the King of the Jews. Both Rome and Israel have placed him on the cross as a sign of his guilt for saying he was something that he was not. The resurrection is God saying he is exactly who he said he was. It is a vindication for Christ and condemnation for those who reject him and place him on the cross through that rejection. If Christ remains in the ground, his words, his ministry, and everything else remains in the ground with him. But his resurrection is a vindication that his word and all of his ministry is true. And it does not die in the ground, but it rises and it ascends into heaven so that it can be confirmed and established as an eternal word and ministry that is to be bound to all the days of our lives into eternity itself. And those who reject his word and his ministry and his kingdom are condemned. The resurrection is not their salvation. It is their condemnation, both for those in the first century and today. Those that reject Christ are rejecting the declaration that God's resurrecting of Christ declares that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. And to reject him is to reject the declaration and message of God that he brings here through his messenger, through his angel, that Jesus Christ is vindicated as being exactly who he said he was. Perhaps that's why the resurrection is a bit fearful. Yes, it's joyous for those who cling to Christ by faith, but it is a note of condemnation for all those that reject him because resurrection is the declaration that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. However, while it is a vindication of Christ before his human authority before the Roman authorities and the secular, or excuse me, Jewish authorities, the resurrection is also at the same time a vindication of Christ before his judge in heaven, his God who has sent him to the cross as the sin bearer of the world. 
To say he has been crucified is to say that he has been cursed by God. It is the reason why the high priests don't just stone Jesus. Uh, capital punishment, the common way of, of meeting out capital punishment in the first century within Jewish circles was to stone someone. But why are they crying out, crucify him, crucify him? It is because they want Jesus Christ to be displayed as one who has been cursed by God. Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. A man who is hung on a tree is cursed by God. Galatians 3.13, Paul will take Deuteronomy 21.3 and he will say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So the declaration from a messenger of God that the crucified one is now risen is the declaration that the curse of the law that lay upon our sin is gone. His resurrection is the father's vindication of his son who has hung on a cursed tree for the sins of his people. And the announcement of his resurrection is the announcement from the Lord that what now remains for Christ's people is not curse for sin, but eternal and everlasting blessings for all those who are hidden in Christ who has been raised from the dead. What is now the reality for those who are in Christ is not defeat, but victory over sin and death. Is not exile, but citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. It is not separation, but nearness to God in and through Jesus Christ our Lord. All those physical signs, those tangible signs in the Old Testament that you read of time and time again, those old covenant curses and those signs of old covenant curses are wiped away in the resurrection of Jesus Christ so that those who are in Christ, there are no more covenant curses hanging over our head. What remains for those in Christ are nothing but covenant blessings, eternal, everlasting blessings, because Christ has hung on a cursed tree. He has been cursed for us, and his resurrection is a vindication, a declaration from God that his sacrifice has been accepted. And so what remains for us is a new creation, a new Israel, a new covenant that is established in the blood of Christ that does not rest in the ground, but is raised from the dead. Third and finally, the resurrection draws his people to himself. The resurrection draws his people to himself. Did you catch the beauty of verse 7? Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you in Galilee. He singles out Peter. He talks about all the disciples, but he, but he singles out Peter. Now, why is that so beautiful? Think about the last time we saw Peter. What did we see Peter doing? He was denying his Lord three different times. And in Luke's account, after that third denial, it tells us that he turned and he looked at Jesus in the face. Can you imagine the guilt can you imagine the shame? Can you imagine the anguish that Peter has been dealing with? 
ever since that denial. Surely Peter is saying, there is no way I can be forgiven. I have committed the unpardonable sin. I ask you today, brothers and sisters, do you have certain sins, perhaps that plague you to this day? Sins that maybe you did a long time ago, sins that maybe you even did into your childhood, and you've thought that you've been forgiven, you thought you've put it away, but every time you pray, every time you have joy, that sin just comes and nags at you. And you say to yourself, there is no way that God can forgive me for that sin. No way. It happened years ago, but it continue, continues to nag at you. Friends, do you hear what this angel is proclaiming? The resurrected Christ calls you by name. Bring Peter. And says, come, my disciple, you are of my fold. You belong to me. Your guilt and your shame does not overcome my resurrection power. My resurrection power overcomes all your guilt, all your shame, all your doubts of my mercy. My resurrection power overcomes it all. It overpowers it. Come, ye sinner, poor, wretched, and needy. If you are plagued by a sin or perhaps a plethora of sins, hear Christ, hear his messenger, hear the angel call you by name to come as the filthy, wretched sinners that we are. What a sweet thing it is that the angel says, his disciples, his disciples. The sheep that have abandoned Christ in his greatest hour of need have not stopped being his sheep. He has carried his sheep, his disciples' shame and sin to the cross. And in his resurrected state now, he says to his sheep, his disciples, come. Their sin, the last picture we saw of of the disciples and their sin and their scattering and their denial has not taken away the fact that they are his. They are Christ's. And he says now in his resurrected state to his disciples and to all of us here this morning, come. And what is it that he will do with these guilt-ridden, cowardice sheep, but pour out his spirit on them and make them servants of the kingdom of God, commissioning them to go and proclaim the gospels, the gospel to the nations. Not only does the resurrected Christ to say to us, guilty sheep, come, but once we come, he then says to us, go. Go and serve, for Christ your king is risen. There is no more curse hanging over your head. There is only blessing. Go in the joy of resurrection power, of a resurrection spirit poured out into your heart and go and joyously serve your king who reigns from upon high at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Come and go. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you that our guilt and our shame and whatever sins we bring with us here this morning into this place cannot overcome the power of Christ's resurrection, that he carries on his shoulders our denials of him. He carries upon his shoulders our sins, sins that we have probably kept from public, kept behind closed doors in a closet corner. Even those sins that we dare not utter to each other, Jesus Christ takes them to the cross. And as a vindication that his sacrifice has been accepted by the Lord, he has been raised from the dead so that in him we can have full assurance that we are your sheep, that we are your children, and that eternal blessings, eternal life, heavenly kingdom glory is ours in Christ, in his person, and in his work. We praise you and glorify your name for this wondrous news that the tomb has been emptied. And we ask, O Lord, that you would pour out your spirit into our hearts that we now, as those who have come with all our filthy rags, would hear our Lord and our King commission us to go and to serve him with gladness and singleness of heart, with joy reigning in our souls, so that you might be honored and Christ might be exalted, who sits even now at your right hand. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.